Well, here's the question that we want to think about here this morning. Um, from our series on the good life, walking our way through the Sermon on the Mount and grabbing themes from that that uh, are part of our Core 52. But the question I want to think about here today is this. Does God care why I do what I do, or does he just care about what I do? Let me ask that again. Does Jesus care why I do what I do, or just about what I do? It would be pretty easy or much more convenient for us if he just cared about what I do. If I could just go about my life and do my things and not really have to have my heart and my actions connected, um, that would be a much easier way to live out faith, right? Um, If I could just go to church, but my heart and mind are a million miles away, I could go serve somebody, I could give some money, I could do all these things that are religious things, good things, um, but my heart never is connecting with them. Um, that would be great if that was what God wanted. But Jesus is going to challenge us today, I think, with that. To wrestle with the question, does Jesus care why I do what I do or just about what I do? At the end of last week's sermon, I encouraged us to read to the Sermon on the Mount uh, because that's where these sermons are all coming from in these weeks. Um, and someone sent a question on Tuesday. They were astutely reading through um, Sermon on the Mount, and they came across a good little conundrum, that's another big word of the day, I guess, uh, a dilemma, because it seems as if Jesus says two separate things that contradict each other. Um, it's in, in chapter 5 and chapter 6. The first is in chapter 5, Matthew 5, Jesus says this to his kingdom people, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So Jesus says that we are to live in a way that people see the good that we do. We are called to have a public part of of our witness, that kingdom life involves a kingdom witness that people will see and experience and and witness. But then the next chapter, you get to Matthew chapter 6, and Jesus seems to contradict that a little bit when he says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven." Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secrets will reward you. There seems to be two things there, right? Jesus would say, if you keep reading in Matthew chapter 6, he'd also talk about praying um, and fasting and other things. And he keeps using the word secrets in chapter six. He uses that a lot as you read through there. So which is it? Am I to do good works so others see it? Or am I to do good works in secret so that no one sees it but God? And the answer is yes. Yeah, it's both. It's, there's, a, there's a bothness there. And the solution to that is tied, I think, to the motives from which a person does things. Why do we do the things for God that we do? Are they done so that others will be helped and God glorified? Then that is a great motivation. Are they done so that others will see and praise me? That's a bad motivation. Or if I could quote the famous Luke Skywalker from the Star Wars movie as he was talking to Uncle Owen, I believe, in the Jawas. Uncle Owen, this R2 unit has a bad motivator. All right? That's a bad motivation. Some of you have never seen Star Wars. If you're young, you should Google it today. All right? Go look it up and and watch Star Wars because your life is not complete. Um, But the bad motivator. All right? And so... um, the, what is the motivator inside of us is really the, the solution to that. 
On the one hand, I am to be serving and, and helping, and, and, and God can be glorified through people seeing the good that you do. But if that's why you do what you do, then your motivation is lacking. I like this chart that Sky Jathani, who is an author and pastor and multiple things, did in a devotional that I've been reading on the Sermon on the Mount. He came up with this little chart that I think helps us to reflect upon whether some, my righteousness or my right relationship with God being expressed through the right things I do for God, um, public or private righteousness, as he reflected on Matthew chapter 6. At the top there, you see the option of God looks good, the left is benefits me, below is I look good, and to the right is benefits others. And so he kind of made categories. I thought, well, am I, am I, as I'm doing the things that I'm doing, if God looks good and it benefits others, there's certainly a healthy thing that God wants that to be seen because who gets glorified? He does in that scenario. But if you switch the other three categories, if God looks good but it benefits me, maybe it's better to be secret with that, to do that hidden in a way. Or if it benefits me and I look good, that's probably something I should be doing secret. That should be a private thing. Or if it benefits others and I look good, then there's probably a place for that to be private. That certainly isn't a legalistic chart at all, but it, I think it categorizes a little bit of what Jesus is trying to help us to see in that section. If something makes God look good and it benefits others, that certainly is what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 5. But Jesus is warning us in Matthew 6 that if something is done that is just for my benefit, or if it's done just to make me look good, which oftentimes the same action can fit in both of those categories if we're not careful, um, he's giving us a warning and a guidance there about doing things to be seen for the sake of being seen. And so when we ask the question, does Jesus care why I do what I do? I think the clear answer is yes. Yes, he does. He cares a great deal. In fact, you can make a pretty strong case that he cares about the why almost as much, if not more so, than the what. Because if he has the why taken care of and the thing that motivates you is for God to look good and for people to be helped, then you're in a good place. He's happy with that. And all the other what's are going to take care of themselves. If you have the correct why, then the what will easily take care of itself over time. I love this quote. I, I, I apologize. I don't remember where I screenshot this from. Um, so somebody else said this. But um, I like this because I think it talks about the motivation issue that probably the only reward that genuine love uh, wants when making a gift to the needy, reflecting upon um, Matthew 6, is to see the need relieved. When the hungry are fed, the naked are clothed, the sick healed, the oppressed freed, and the lost saved, the love that prompted our gift is satisfied. Such love, which is God's own love expressed through us, brings with it its own private joys and desires no other reward." In other words, I don't need applause, I don't need accolades, I don't want that, I don't hunger for that, I just want to see the need met. And so I think that's what Jesus does for us in a humble way in many ways. And so I will put before you this main theme, I guess, this morning, that the motives of our heart matter significantly more than oftentimes we suppose they do. I think sometimes we can get settled into a comfortableness where we think there's a disconnect and, and God's okay with that. But I think what we're going to see here this morning as we read our way through Matthew 5 um, is that the motives of our heart and the workings of our heart and what's going on in our hearts matter significantly more to the Lord than we suppose they do. 
Because Jesus spoke these words that we're going to see here this morning into a culture, into a context in which there was a tremendous amount of religious activity, tremendous amount of religious performance and activity and structure and organization. There's all kinds of these religious things going on. But Jesus came into it and said, there's a problem here. There are all these religious things are happening, but the motives of the heart mattered significantly more to Jesus than they did to all the people who, I don't think they began that way, but I think over time, religious people can lose the why and we just get stuck with the what's. So we do all the what's of of attending churches and, and serving and doing the what's, but we lose the why. And when we lose the why, that's when Jesus steps in and he reminds us that the motives of our hearts matter significantly more than we suppose they do. Sometimes we convince ourselves that I'm doing fine, I'm getting along fine, I haven't murdered anyone this week, thought thought about it, but I didn't do it, and I haven't done anything really bad to anybody this week that I can think of. We make ourselves feel pretty good when we can superficially keep some of the commandments that seem doable. Um, I didn't, again, don't murder, I haven't cheated too many people this week, I've been generally honest, Uh, I was good to people who were good to me, I was pretty good, pretty normal good person this week, and and we feel good about that, and that's okay, that's not a bad standard to live by, Uh, but there's something that Jesus Jesus calls us to look deeper. When you start listening to Jesus' teachings, you realize that he cares a lot more about the motives of your heart and the workings of your heart than we oftentimes do. We just want to look good enough on the outside to make people think well of us. But Jesus challenges all kinds of heart issues in between that passage in Matthew 5, where Jesus said, you're the salt and the light, and in Matthew 6, where he warned us. He says a lot of things about our hearts in between there. Our righteousness, our right relationship to God expressed the right things that we do for God needs to be a much deeper um, work than the superficial things that oftentimes we get caught up with as rule keeping. We need to do the right thing from a right heart. And so what does that look like? Jesus is glad that you asked that question if you want to know what does that look like. So let's take a few minutes out of your morning here and I want us to listen closely to Jesus um, we're going to read through a long section here, um, which anytime we read a long section, I tend to losing you, but I hope that you'll stick with me here because Jesus continues to challenge our hearts from different perspectives. Um, and so um, before we get to the, the real meat of this, I, I want to address the context of what Jesus says here. In Matthew 5, verse 17, you begin to find, you find these words, do not think that I have come, Jesus is speaking, I do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come to abol- I've not come to come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so the reason Jesus says that is because Jesus came and, and even in the verses that we're going to follow, he kind of contrasts his approach to the law versus the scribes and the Pharisees. And so it sounded sometimes, and Jesus was accused of not being a good law-keeping rabbi because he didn't keep the Sabbath like the Pharisees did. They had built all these extra laws and layers around the Sabbath, but Jesus broke a lot of them. And so they accused him of thinking the law doesn't matter to you. It's, uh, it's lessened in your, in your approach to it. But Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets. What, all that truth of God that, that was there, I didn't come to abolish it. I came to fulfill it. How was Jesus going to fulfill all that two-thirds of your Bible, which is the Old Testament? Well, he answered all the prophecies that were about him. He fulfilled it in that way. He fulfilled it in living it out perfectly as a, a new Adam who was supposed to live for God and failed. Jesus comes and he lives it out faithfully. And he showed what God fully intended for the law to be. Because for too many people in Jesus' world, and it's the same way that exists in religious worlds today, 
Too oftentimes religion can become a superficial practicing of rules and laws. And we lose the heart in it. We lose the why. And so Jesus came and he fully explored and unpacked what the law of God was supposed to look like when it's lived out. And yes, there was outside activity, but there was an inner heart that was behind that. And so Jesus said, I've come to fulfill this, all this stuff. He says, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota or a dot, which are just very small Hebrew letters, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes, and that's an interesting word, one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And so he, he holds the high view of, of God's law, of his moral law that, that has been given and he lived in, that culture. And then he comes to verse 20 and he blows the doors off of everybody who is listening to him. For I tell you, unless your righteousness... The right things that you do, your right things with God, exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, why did that blow their doors off? Well, it blew their doors off because the scribes and the Pharisees were the most righteous people anybody in that world knew. They knew the law backwards and forwards. They had memorized it. They copied it. They preserved it. They taught it. They seemed to obey it more than anybody else in their culture. They they. they protected it at, at great risk to themselves sometimes. They even loved the law so much they added all these extra layers that you, wouldn't even, you couldn't even get to this breaking this commandment because you had to break all these others to get it. So they did all these things thinking they were serving God. And in many ways they were trying, but Jesus addresses a problem here in Matthew 5 and throughout Matthew's gospel, he addresses a, a problem that existed in that culture, that religious culture. See, he could see past their outer actions and he knew their hearts. He knew their motives and he calls them out on it. They looked good on the outside, but their hearts, their motivations, their motivators were wrong. For example, if you go to Matthew 23, there's a long section of the woes in which Jesus continues to give woe after woe after woe, which are just warnings to the scribes and the Pharisees about this issue. Matthew 23, verse 2 says, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. In other words, they sit in a place of authority. So do and observe whatever they tell you to do, but not the works that they do, for they preach, but they do not practice. Verse 5, They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, which is basically just they have fancy religious clothing just so people know exactly who they are. They love the places of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogue and the greetings in the marketplaces and being called, being called rabbi by others. Verse 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin. In other words, they went to their garden, they tithe everything that they grew in their garden, which is wonderful and fine. But you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, which is justice and mercy and faithfulness. So a minute ago when we looked at how Jesus fulfills the law and he lives it out with the heart that God intended, this is where I think that kicks in. That Jesus came with mercy to sinners and he came with kindness to people that religious people would have nothing to do with. And so he, neglect, he challenges them on this for neglecting that. Verse 25, finally he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also 
may be made clean. And so I think if you read through Matthew 23 and then you come back to Matthew 5, I think that's the heart of what Jesus is going to say as we read through this section in Matthew 5, is that he desires a clean heart. He desires heart work as much as religious work. He longs for people to be motivated from a sincere walk with God. Uh, and if you doubt that, just again, go back to last week, look, read through the Beatitudes, walk slowly through them and hear the brokenness and the humility and the dependence upon God and the hunger for God and for God to work through their life. You see all of that, this sincere walk with God. He then talks about six examples, maybe five if you group two of them together, which you could do, um, but five or six examples of this deeper righteousness. And each one is going to contrast something they've been taught or something they've seen versus this heart that he wants to live within them. And so you'll see the heart and you'll see the motivation that Christ longs in our life. And I, I think as you read them, there will be multiple reactions um, to, a, to, in, to, your, to you if you're really diving into them thinking, this is what God expects of me. So the first is chapter 5, verse 21. Uh, he talks about um, murder and, and anger. Because you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So again, every culture on this earth almost that I can think of has rules against murder. It's wrong to take someone else's life. Now that's an outward action that I do towards someone else. But Jesus takes it deeper. He says, but I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgments. You see the change of focus? It's from murder to anger. And that encompasses a whole lot more people, right? And there's a few people who have murdered others, but there's a lot of us who have been angry with one another. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. You see, the law can measure actions, but true righteousness grows out of motives. Just think about anger. Our culture is addicted to anger and outrage. Anger has become the acceptable tone in which we talk to each other. And in fact, if someone's not angry about something as they talk, we don't listen. It's just dull noise in the background. But it's until somebody's angry that we get, we're drawn to their voice. And, and there's something very wrong about that. So Jesus would have us, not as... Americans or people of the world, but as Christians, to say, why is that acceptable? Why is it acceptable for us to be such an angry people when Jesus warns us so clearly of anger's toxicity to our soul? Perhaps our constant media consumption from news to social media to all the things has just deadened our ability to feel more subtle human emotions. But in an overstimulated environment where everybody from politicians to everybody else is using anger to inflame us, we need to see this difference. Jesus says anger is an issue. And he warns us about anger that oftentimes doesn't come through a gun or through a knife that I, I port somebody, but through the words that I say to them. He warns us in two or three different places here about the insults that we say to each other, the way that we speak of and speak to each other. Jesus spoke about a different, even more dangerous level of anger, and that's just simply this level of contempt. His warning about insulting others is often overlooked in our culture, where we think it's fine to say whatever I want to say about somebody on social media or even to their face. And we'll say it, and we think that's okay. But Jesus says that's a serious mistake. The insulting word that he uses here for the, you fool is the word raka. 
And raka is a Hebrew word, and it's one of those languages that when you say your R's, you need to kind of dig down deep in your throat like you've got phlegm there, and you're trying to get it out, and that's gross, but that's exactly where this word comes from. It comes from the word, uh, the action of drawing up phlegm, of drawing it out. And I was going to do that for you, but that's gross. And in this day and age, it's probably good not to spit in, in church. But, but you know that feeling, right? You're, you're out by yourself, no one's around, and you just got to spit. And so you do that, that noise, there's a little bit of it. Uh, but you know that noise, right? That's exactly what this is. And the thing that you spit out isn't something you treasure and think that's special, right? You just want to get rid of that. There's a level of disdain for that. And that's what this word communicates. It's a dismissive term of contempt that came from the clearing of spit from one's throat. And that contempt seeks to diminish the inherent value of another person when I bring that attitude, words like that. It views the other, other person as subhuman, not even worthy of attention. It, it, it assumes the person is not worthy of care or thought or dignity. And all of a sudden, Jesus takes it to, oh, only a few people fall into the murder category to, wow. How many times in the last 24 hours have I wrestled with anger towards somebody? It's a much different point of view. And so from everything from all around us, anger is there, right? And so Jesus warns us, it's about, not about actions. That's what the world does. They just, just don't murder people. But Jesus says, in my kingdom, we look at this differently. We look at the heart. Where is anger residing? What is anger doing in your soul? He goes on. Uh, we'll go quickly through the rest of these. There, there's a lot there. Each one of these is probably four or five sermons apiece. Uh, verse 27 says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. Again, there's an outward action of adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intents, there's a heart issue, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So again, just like anger, we live in a lust-saturated, a sex-saturated culture where pornography is everywhere, accessible, and God, Jesus calls us, just like with anger, to look at our hearts. Say, where is lust at work in my soul? And then he says in a, in a kind of a hyperbolic way, of, of, he kind of goes to the extremes to prove a point. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body to go into hell. Again, he's not... Um, really calling for us to pluck out eyes and cop off, chop off hands. He's calling us to take extreme measures to fight this in our life. He goes on and talks about the hard-heartedness that can exist in our relationships, especially in marriage. Um, and I want to give some context to this verse because there's a deep well here, and I don't want to say this, and just we're going to have to go by this fast, but I don't want to go leave a wrong impression. What Jesus is speaking to when he gets to verse 31, and he says that it's also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Um, and it, divorce is a personal and it is a painful thing, and I recognize that. And so what Jesus is talking about here, he is speaking to a group of Sadducees and, and scribes who had softened the requirements for divorce. The Bible talks about sexual immorality and other kinds of things that are biblical reasons for a marriage to end. But in their culture, they had made it accessible uh, I've lost the ability to speak. He made it, he made it, they had made it um, easy for someone to divorce their wife for any reason. He's speaking to the men in this group because they were the power holders in that culture. He's speaking to them, especially the Sadducees and Pharisees. And so a man could divorce his wife for any reason, really. He could just hand her a certificate of divorce and be done with her. 
But what Jesus, the heart of what he is trying to say here, and there's other complications with this, but the heart of what he's trying to say is he's speaking to those who hold power over women in that culture and says, when you do that, when, he, when you do that, you leave this woman vulnerable to all kinds of attacks, her reputation being soiled and she being shunned by many, especially in the religious establishment, how she will be preyed upon by others, likely end up in poverty and other things. So when he says, verse 32, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, again, leaves her in a very vulnerable place, sets her down a very difficult path, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now again, that's a deep well. This isn't all that Jesus says about divorce. But just understand this, the heart of what Jesus is trying to get to is this hard-heartedness that allows me to treat another person with great disdain. Again, carrying over that idea from the anger thing, I believe. They had relaxed the intent of God's design to a place that hurt others for their own desires. And Jesus would later say in Matthew 19, when he's talking again about divorce, he, he just used the, these words that because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But it wasn't so from the beginning. Again, God's heart is compassionate and there's grace and there's all kinds of good things. And so please hear that. But again, it's the hardness of heart that I want us to kind of focus on here. It's the hardness of heart that can cause us to just do great damage and great harm to another. And Jesus is calling, there's the, there's the outside action, but there's the heart that we have to look at. And so certainly he is calling for them, that, that power brokers of that culture to say, where's your heart at? You're treating people and leaving them great, in great vulnerable spots in your world. Where is your heart at? He goes on to say this in verse 33, another example. Again, you've heard it was said of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. And he gets into this whole idea of taking oaths, which these are, this is kind of foreign language to a lot of us. He says, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take it. Do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. That was before hair dye came a thing. Um, let, not, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. He gets to the honesty, the integrity of our hearts. When I say, yes, I will do something, is really what he's calling. I shouldn't have to make 15 oaths so that someone will believe my word. He's talking about the honesty of hearts. That ought to be a characteristic of a kingdom person. Let my yes be yes and my no be no. Um, and again, all the other oaths. That I, we, when we did this as kids, we make a promise, pinky swear to our sibling. But then it comes time to pay up because I lost. And I'll find some avenue not to pay up because, oh, well, the sun was. It, 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 you'll find your reasons, right? If I want to get out of an oath, I, will, I can manipulate a situation to get out of that. And we do that. And yet Jesus is calling us to a level of honesty that our words matter. Our yeses are yeses, our noes are noes. Then Jesus finally gets to the last one. You've heard that it was said, actually two more. You've heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It gets to the idea of revenge, of vengeance that comes out of our hearts. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. This is a, it's a common uh, insult in that culture to be slapped on the cheek. Uh, with the back of the hand. It was just a common thing in their culture, still is in Eastern cultures. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Um, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Um, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. 
This is, again, a passage that you need to see in light of everything else Jesus says. But just to summarize, this passage is not saying that if you're in an abusive situation, you need to stay there and take that abuse, all right? Jesus, other places, talks about defending ourselves, and he even did that. He exercised his rights. What it's talking about is being the bigger person in a challenging situation. We expose the ugliness of sin by the practice of goodness, in other words, when we use that example of anyone forcing you to go one mile, that was a common thing. A Roman soldier who occupied and, and in, not enslaved, but certainly ruled over all Jewish people, a Roman soldier by law could conscript a Jewish person to carry their pack one mile. And so by law, they could do that. And so that would happen all the time. That was a familiar thing that would happen to them. But Jesus says, you know what? You want to show the character qualities of these two individuals. They ask you to do one, do two. And all of a sudden, people think, well, why would you do that? Why would you treat them better than they deserve? You don't have to do that. Why would you do that? Um, I think it goes back to what Romans 12, was. Paul would summarize this idea when he says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And Jesus is calling us to respond differently to the world. Martin Luther King Jr. drew many of examples from his peaceful protests during uh, the race um, marches back in the 60s and th that time period from ideas like this. I want to show the ugliness and the hatred of, uh, of uh, racial issues. Be, be good. Be peaceful. And the other side shows itself for what it is. And that's what Jesus is calling us to. And how many times when Jesus being beaten, crucified, he, they, Peter talks about how he didn't lash back out. He didn't curse those who were cursing him. Instead, he blessed them. He overcame evil with good. So Jesus is calling us to have a heart that's different in that. And finally, this last one, how we treat our enemies. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven for he makes the sun rise in the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do, you not, do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. So again, he highlights this idea that God is, treats us better than we ever deserve, good or bad. He just, he's kind to us. And that ought to be a trait in us. And then he finally, we looked at the at verse 20, that book, that first bookend was, um, you have to be more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees, which would have blown them away. And then he finishes this section with this verse in verse 48. You therefore must be perfect or complete or mature as your heavenly father is perfect or complete or mature. So again, the standard is raised high. And so anyone listening to this is thinking to themselves, how in the world can I be like that? How in the world could I do that? And so before we get to an answer to some of that, I would just simply remind us that the motives of our heart, as you read through this passage, please understand that Jesus cares about the motive of your heart. Yes, the actions are fine, but if the motive is right, the actions will take care of themselves because good actions come out of a good heart. And so the motives of our hearts matter significantly more than we suppose they do. And so we need to stop being satisfied with superficial spirituality we need to stop being content with, well, I didn't murder them, but boy, I hate them and I will say bad words about everything I can about them to slander them or tear people down. Or I didn't cheat on my wife, but there's lust running all over the place. Or, or I didn't 
lie to them, but I, I did finagle my way. Just all of that stuff, that, that ugliness that can live in our heart. And we can be superficially spiritual. I can do all the things and look really good to the world. But Jesus knows our hearts. So I need to stop being satisfied with superficial spirituality. Jesus is calling us to a level of living with him that touches the deep parts of our soul. The parts that produce anger and lust and selfish treatment of others and dishonesty because it benefits us or coldness toward our enemies and on the list could go. He longs to transform us into the, ha- the Father's character. Verse 48. But if you're paying attention here, what Jesus is calling you to is hard. Right? This isn't an easy passage to read. I've read it several times this week and every time I thought, holy cow, who can be that? <laughs> who, can, who can respond daily on a consistent basis with that? It seems impossible. How can we eradicate anger? How do we overcome lust? How do we break through hard hearts and relationships? How do we treat our enemies with love and dignity? How do you learn to do that? Well, I think part of what Jesus does, I think part of it is to hold up the standard, that, that there is a standard, and we are called to rise to it or to live it out. But I think part of what Jesus is doing is that it's a standard that we cannot meet on our own. We can't do this by ourselves. We need help. And so I'll finish with this statement. Um, I think this passage calls us to surrender and depend on the Lord. That surrender and dependence is my only hope of seeing this life formed in my heart. It's surrendering to Christ. It's surrendering to his life-giving death and resurrection. It is surrendering my wants and my wishes and depending upon him. It's my only hope of seeing this life formed within me. It will not happen just because I want it to. It, it, it just won't. My flesh will always win over my will when it comes to these things. I have to surrender and I have to depend upon Christ. As you listen to the challenging call that Jesus is issuing here, we can't help but hopefully be driven towards Christ for the help that we need to be this kind of kingdom people. It is only in surrender to him and his spirit's work in our life that we come to deal with our anger in a way that actually dissolves it and good comes out of it. It's the only way that we find purity of heart and mind. It's the only way that we'll learn to love our spouses through all the seasons of life. It's the only way that we'll live honestly no matter what. It's the only way that we'll respond differently towards those who push us and push our buttons. And on it goes, I can't do this on my own. You can't do this on your own. I need the help of Christ's Holy Spirit to transform me, to help me, to convict me, to change me, to comfort me, and to walk with me. And so it's my prayer that God would help us in this journey. As we walk out of here today, um, again, this is a heavy passage, and every time I read it, I don't necessarily feel good about myself, and I think that's okay. But I feel good about the Jesus who came and said these high and lofty words, because then he would go and he would die. He would die for all of us who can't live up to the standard so that his righteousness would lift us and begin to grow in us and begin to change us and begin to make us kingdom people. And so this morning as we, uh, we're going to pray in a moment and, and sing our last song here, but uh, it's my hope that your heart would be open to God and his spirits and whatever he is prodding you and convicting you towards. Maybe you've never responded to Christ um, in your life. And dependence and surrender means I surrender for the very first time. 
that I see Christ as my only hope to be what God wants me to be. And that I recognize that his death and his resurrection makes it possible for me to be forgiven and cleansed and made whole. And maybe today is the day that I confess my faith in him. My confession is he's my savior, he's my Lord. I repent of my life of just being a heart that is never right. I confess to him that he is right. And I show that today by surrendering to him in baptism and that new life that he brings to us. And I begin that walk of dependence of just daily walking with him and allowing him to daily and slowly, moment by moment, help me navigate all the things. And so today, uh, maybe that needs to be your step of surrender and dependence. Or maybe you made that step a long time ago, but your heart has grown cold and your walk has grown stale. And maybe our prayer today just needs to be, God, I, I need you now more than I ever needed you before. And I've drifted, I've become superficial. I still do a lot of churchy things, but my heart is cold. And my prayer for us to fit in that category that it would just chip through the hard-heartedness, the calluses, and that he would make our hearts soft, that they would beat for him once again in surrender and dependence. So let's pray to God for his help today, please. Lord, it's... Uh, with heavy words like these, we recognize our need for you. God, you hold up this standard, a beautiful standard of people who live well, who love well, who treat others well. It's a, it's a good thing. But Lord, it's hard because anger and lust and selfishness and, and deceit and revenge and dislike for others who disagree with us. Those are powerful forces. And our hearts will probably never be changed without a work from you. And so, Father, today we come and ask for your help to move in this direction. I pray that you would break through the hard-heartedness and the callousness of our hearts, that you would make our hearts soft and moldable, and their lives would begin to draw out these characteristics that you have shown that your kingdom people live with, that would be, be more peaceful, less angry, that we would show true love for people, not lust, and how we treat them and see them, that we would be honest in our dealings, that we would treat our family, our marriages would be better because our hearts are soft and we recognize the oneness that you have called us to and, and God, even our enemies would see a different thing as we treat them with dignity and respect and not um, derision. And so, Lord, do that work in us today. Help us, because we can't do this ourselves. We love you and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.